ask that you keep your Bible open to Isaiah 52 and 53. We're going to be looking predominantly at that text that Everett just read for us this morning as we think about what it means for Jesus to have died on the cross for us. Inside of that announcement sheet, you're going to find uh, an outline that you can use as we go through this message, and you can fill in the blanks and take notes with it. I'd encourage you to get that out as we go through it. And let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we are overcome by, by the weight of, of the moment as we have tasted uh, of your, your endless mercy in the emblems of bread and wine given to us. And we have paused to think of, of who we would be and what we would be, what we would be like without the cross of Christ. And with every sinew of our being, Father, with every ounce of, of our energy, we, we lift our worship and praise and gratitude and thankfulness to You, Father, in light of this great grace that You have poured out on us. And at the same time, Father, we, we ask for You to increase our faith as we, we, we endeavor every day to bring great glory to You in this community, this community that we live, this community that, that we love, this community, Father, in which we raise our children and go to work and interact with, with, with people, Father. We pray that, with that, that the enthusiasm of, of that resurrection morning be infused, Father, in our own faith and that we live with that great anticipation and hope of these vital truths to our spiritual life into our entire being. So bless us, Father, by giving us eyes that see and ears that hear. And we pray this in the name of Jesus and all the church said. In the latter chapters of Isaiah, we encounter this mysterious figure that is known as the servant of the Lord who is identified later in the New Testament as Jesus of Nazareth. And in chapter 53, you have the chapter. It's the chapter in the entire Bible explaining to us what was happening at the cross on the day that Jesus died. And the writers of the New Testament are, are constantly going back to Isaiah chapter 53 to help us to understand and to get our minds around what was taking place, what was happening, what was being affected in the entire universe on that day that Jesus died for our sins. And so to help us to get our minds really around this chapter, we have a, a bit of a challenge. And the challenge is to give this passage, Isaiah, the end of really of chapter 52 and really all of 53, to give it its due solemnity. In a lot of ways, we need this morning to feel like we're Moses in front of that burning bush. Metaphorically speaking, we need, we need at least mentally, intellectually, we need to take our shoes off. Because before us is a holy, holy, holy chapter. And in this 53rd chapter of Isaiah, we find a tremendous truth and we find a profound hope for us, which is really, when you think about it, an, an extremely significant thing for us in this world today. You know, up until about the beginning of the 20th century, the world was really an optimistic place. 
There was a lot of optimism about the things that humankind would achieve, the kinds of things that we would accomplish given enough time, given the, the, the resources to do it. There was a lot of optimism that you know, the, 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 the uncharted areas of the mind and of the world would, would somehow be conquered. But after World War I and World War II and Korea and Stalin's archipelago of, of gulags throughout the Soviet Union and Vietnam and tribal warfare in Africa, ethnic cleansing in Eastern Europe, 9-11, two Gulf Wars, Afghanistan, world economies that are kind of shaken. The world is not a very optimistic place, is it? In fact, in a lot of places... The world is marked with a, a, to a huge degree with pessimism. And I mean, we still like those Frank Capra movies. I mean, at Christmas, who doesn't want to see A Wonderful Life? I mean, we like it. We like those kinds of movies, but we don't think they're very realistic, do we? And the reason that most of the world is pessimistic is that we've really not found an answer to this, this really basic question. The question is this, what is wrong with us? What is wrong with us that we are capable of doing these kinds of things, not only to each other, but doing them to the earth and doing them you know, to, to the environment and, and doing it to people that we can't even see? And maybe one other question is, once we kind of figure out what's wrong with us, what are we going to do about it? Now the interesting thing about Isaiah 52 and 53 is not only what is said, but who it's written to. It was written to the remaining part of the nation of Israel that was about to go into exile, and they were going to experience some terrible things on the way. There was going to be captivity. There was going to be atrocities. There was going to be death. There was going to be exile. There was going to be loss of home. There was going to be loss of family. There was going to be loss of national identity. There was going to be the loss of knowing that you're standing on your native land. You're going to be carried away into a foreign country and you're not going to be free. You're going to be slaves. And this chapter, Isaiah 53, was written to them to help them to understand what is wrong with human beings and what can be done about it. Now that's re the reason this chapter is really so important. But there's another reason too. It's because of the answer. What is going to be done about it? Well, here's the answer. God is sending someone. God is sending someone. God is sending this special servant. And in this text that Everett just read for us a moment ago, we find out three things. Who He is and why He came and what He did. Let's tackle that first one right now. First question, who is He? Who is this special servant? Well, look at the very beginning of the passage that Everett read. Isaiah 52, verse 13. God is speaking through Isaiah. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be what, church? Raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Now, the reason I had you repeat those words is because these are the exact same words that we find in Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah is in the temple in the year that Isaiah, King Isaiah had died and he sees God high and lifted up and exalted. And Isaiah, whenever this chapter 52 was written in relation and time-wise to, to Isaiah chapter 6, he is using the exact same words to say something very specific and profound about the special servant. But it's not just there. Look at verse 1 of chapter 53. He says, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the, what, four words, arm of the Lord. Let's say that together as a church. Arm of the Lord. 
whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, all of us that have been reading the Old Testament for a long time, you guys have been reading you know, your Old Testament and your New Testament for years and years and years, you understand immediately that the arm of the Lord is a metaphor, a very specific metaphor in the Old Testament that refers to the Lord God breaking into history and doing a concrete thing. Now, when... Uh, you know, in mar- modern-day jargon, you know, we, you know, we like, uh, us guys especially, we're lifting a lot of weights. We like to refer to, you know, this is my, 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 my first weapon and my second weapon over here. And we talk about, you know, general strength that way, that these are my weapons, these are my cannons. That's not really the way this metaphor is to be understood. It's not strength in general. It's not a reference to the fact that God is so almighty and powerful that, you know, He can do amazing feats of strength. It's not strength in general, but it's a reference to God's power as it has been experienced and felt in tangible ways in, in history. And, and the main point in, in trying to identify this servant is for us to understand that it, it's about his armness. It's about his power. That is, that is not just a, a strength in general, but it's a power that is tangible and concrete and felt and noticed and, and reverberates throughout all of history. And that's who this special servant is. Now, number two, why did he come? Why did the arm of the Lord in this highly exalted and lifted up servant, why did he come? Well, in verses 4 through 6, you basically have a vocabulary list of the words that describe who we really are, that describe what human evil is all about, that describe what is wrong with us. Infirmities, transgressions. You know, one of my favorite words is the word iniquity. You know, in Hebrew, that word iniquity means something that is bent. It's, it, it's, it's broken because it's bent. And to try to unbend it is to make it even more broke. So you got the infirmities and the transgressions and the iniquities. And then there's one more phrase that kind of gets at the, to the essence of what's really wrong with us. It's at the very end of that text that ever read, verse 6. We like what, church? Sheep, right? Like sheep, we've gone astray, and each of us has turned to his own way. That's the problem. What's wrong with us? So we're like sheep. And we've decided to go our own way. This doesn't sound very evil, does it? But it is, according to the Bible, the core of the problem. Someone asks, well, we've gone our own way? What about murder? What about theft? What about adultery? What about, you know, I mean, I mean, go his own way? That's what every child wants. Every child wants his own way. That's right. Glad you mentioned it. You parents know the answer to this question. Suppose... You know, you're out in, in one of the parks here in San Antonio or maybe you're going out to a ranch that has some horses on it and you're walking with your three children to this place where they can ride the pony. And you say to your oldest son, you know, Ben, you rode the pony all morning. Why don't you let your brother and sister ride that pony now? Now, all of us that have been parents for a while, we know what Ben's going to do as soon as he gets to the park, right? He's not going to wait his turn. What is he going to do? He's going to run up to the guy that has the pony and what's he going to say? Me first. At the core of our being, in, in our microchip, is, is me first. I mean, think about all of the ethnic cleansings in the world. 
at the root of that is me first. What does every crime boil down to? I mean, have you noticed like I have, every time you get up in the morning and you turn on one of the news stations, there's another stabbing, another shooting. There's, there's another piece of crime against humanity that's taking place in our community, in San Antonio, for goodness sake. What does every crime boil down to? Me first. Me first, the essence of sin. You know, for those uh, are old enough to remember, uh, you know, some of those beginning ads for Burger King, what was it that Burger King said? Have it your own essence of sin. <laughs> that, by the way, that's why there are no Burger Kings in heaven, only water burgers. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Anna Chester's. But me first is more than just a problem between us, right? The way that the Bible talks about it, me first is a problem between God and humans. The text does not say, uh, like cats, we have gone astray. Why? Because cats don't really need you know, somebody the way that a sheep needs a shepherd. That's why that metaphor is used. Cats are survivors. Sheep are not. Sheep need a shepherd and we need God, but we keep shaking our fist in His face and saying, me first. I want to be my own shepherd. And one of the things that's really important for us to understand right now is that sin is more than just breaking the rules. It's that too, like cheating on a test. But it's more than that. It's living for self and your soul is bent in the process, but we're going to do it anyway. And that's why Jesus came. There's this undeletable thing. <coughs> there is this undeletable thing in the heart of every human being that says, it's me first all the time. Yeah, many of you have been reading the books of John Stott for a lot of years. You'll know that in one of his most famous books, um, Basic Christianity, he says that, that the theology of the Bible can really be boiled down to one word in, in the Bible, and that is the word substitution. The problem, the main problem, the core problem, the big problem, the dangerous problem, the problem of evil, the problem of pain, all of that begins with substitution. We have substituted ourselves for God. But the word in the theology of substitution doesn't stop there. The solution is that God came and substituted Himself for us, which leads to the glorious third point. What did He do? When this arm of God, the strength of God, the power of God, acting in history and changing things and parting the Red Sea, when that power and that serving came because of our transgressions, our iniquities, the fact that we are bit in on ourselves, that it's me first all the time, that we're selfish and self-centered, that regardless of how hard we try, there is something in our microchip and something in our core that will not allow us to do right. So how did, how, what did he do? How did he do it? Well, God substituted Himself for us. The passage is just sprinkled with these kinds of allusions. Verse 5, He was pierced for what? Let's say it out loud, church. He was pierced for what? Our transgressions. Same in verse 5, He was crushed. You ever think about God being crushed? You know, another way to translate that out of the Hebrew is He was massacred. He was massacred for what? Say it. Our iniquities. 
what happened to this special servant is our consequences. Our consequences go to him. But look at verse 11. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, justify many, bearing their iniquities. Now, that's one of those words. I mean, there's a television show right now called Justified, and, you know, it doesn't really give us a very good meaning of the word, at least not a very clear meaning of the word. In fact, the kind of meaning I get out of the show is I wouldn't agree with necessarily. But what does it mean to justify something? Biblically speaking, what does it mean? You make a statement, for example. Ben, ben and I are having a conversation, and he says something that maybe I don't agree with. And I say, you know what? I don't know if I really go that far. I don't know if I agree with that. Can you justify that? Can you justify your stance? Can you justify that idea? The reason you believe that. And he says, okay, here goes. And he may give me some proofs. He may give me some logic. He may give me some examples. He may say, here's a book that you need to read that you haven't read yet. Here are some scriptures maybe that you need to look at if it's a theological problem. But he begins to give me all of these proofs and arguments and reasons and examples of logic and illustrations to help me to understand. And then I say to him, you know what? You've justified that statement. I get where you're coming from. I get it now. Now here's the question. Did he change his statement? The answer is no. What he changed was the way that I feel about that statement. And that is what Christ does. That's what Christ does. He changes the way that God feels about us and looks at us and relates to us when Christ, the special servant, the power of God's arm coming in history, the special servant, the Messiah, the anointed one, comes and takes all of our sins every terrible thing that man has ever done. And he takes it upon himself in order for, for God to be just. You can't allow the crimes against a, a holy God and crimes against the universe and crimes against humanity to go unpunished. And Christ takes all of that upon himself in order for those crimes to be paid by him and not by us. And in so doing, he changes the way that God relates to us. He takes our sins so that we can have His righteousness. That's what 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 is saying. God made Him who had no sin. He was innocent. He was completely perfect. God made Him the special servant, the servant of, of Isaiah 52 and 53, of, of the latter part of Isaiah. He took that Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, and made Him to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become what, church? The righteousness of God. Now there's the substitution. That He takes our sin so that we can have His righteousness. Now that's a really amazing thing to think about. And even what's more amazing to me to think about as I meditated on this thing all you know, for the last couple of weeks is to think about what it was that kept him on that cross. You know, it's not the nails. What was it that really kept Jesus on the cross? I mean, he didn't even have to go to the cross, right? Because he had how many angels to come to his aid? How many, church? 10,000 angels. Do you think that the entire Roman Empire is anything compared to 10,000 angels? What kept him on the cross? 
Chains? What was it? I think that we really get a glimpse of it as human beings when we see what it was that he was willing to go through. And we get a picture of it at the end of chapter 52. Look at verse 14. Everybody, I want you to look at verse 14. In verse 14, people are appalled by what they see. There's this strange paradox, a strange mixture at the end of chapter 52. He is the one that is going to be lifted up. He is the one that's going to have success. He's the one that's going to be exalted. He is going to be the one that gets it done. But somewhere in that mixture of success and being lifted up is also the ingredient of something that when people looked at him and all of that, they were appalled. Now that word appalled is in Hebrew is a pretty emotional word. It's a strong word. It means to be shattered. If that word was, was used to describe a city, it would be, if, if we were using Hebrew to describe what happened to Hiroshima when the atomic bomb landed on it in 1945, that would be the word. Rubble. No stone left on top of another. When, when it's applied to a person, though, it means that that person has become so shattered by what they see that what they want to do is, is, is to throw up. And why are these people appalled when they look at this special servant? The text tells us. It's because this servant, the servant of the Lord, the one that is going to have success and get it done and be highly lifted up and highly exalted, it is because this servant has become so disfigured by violence that he doesn't look human anymore. He doesn't look human. And Isaiah is saying that if you were there 2,010 years ago when Jesus was crucified, that you would be shattered if you saw what we did to Him. That to look upon Him is to be sickened and to be shocked by His appearance, by the crushing violence that we human beings were able to do to Him because we shook our fist at God in the sky and we said, me first, not Him. Why did He do it? What was it that kept Him up there on that cross when nails and chains and a whole Roman Empire couldn't keep Him on that cross? What was it? It was love. But even more specific, drill down deeper. It was me. And it's you. We read in Hebrews chapter 12, the writer has been spending all of his time really trying to convince us that, that Jesus is superior to any other kind of religion in the world, is superior to the old Jewish law, it's superior to, to any other kind of philosophy. And at the very end of the book, he gives to me what is the most astounding argument for, for the superiority of Jesus for all of us, for why Jesus deserves to be Lord and why Jesus deserves for, for our, our lives to be given to Him in worshipful service. It's verse 2 of chapter 12. 
And the writer says, after making all of these arguments, how Jesus is greater than Abel and Abraham and Moses and Cain and David and, and a whole list of other people in that Old Testament, he says, this is what you need to do. You look at Jesus for a while. You fix your eyes on Jesus, who is this author and perfecter of our faith, who for the, what's that word, church? Joy. Set before Him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It's kind of a crazy statement, isn't it? And you think about Jesus up there without a cross, without nails, without the spear in the side, without the 40 days of, of fasting, without all of the temptations, without all of the frustration of people that couldn't get Him and all of the frustration of people that, that saw what He did and said, you know what, the right, the right response to seeing Jesus' miracles and raising people you know, from the dead like Lazarus and feeding 5,000 people, the proper response of that any human being would know is to kill Him, to massacre Him, and to crush Him. So why in the world, when he had perfect joy in heaven, they had everything, perfect relationship and fellowship with God the Father and God the Spirit, why would God the Son do it? What on, what on earth, literally, was the joy that he didn't have in heaven? It's us. That's what kept him on the cross. Love for you and for me and for everyone. I, I really struggle with Isaiah 52 and 53 because I see more than I can explain and I feel more than I can express. But when I think very clearly and honestly about all of the terrible things, my own iniquity, my own transgressions, my own... Uh, sin, the, my own way of saying me first in my marriage or to my kids or with my colleagues or my friends or my neighbors. And I see that Jesus was willing to leave heaven to die on the cross in order for my sin to be paid for. I'm not, nobody's getting off scot-free here. But He took it on Him in order for God to feel differently about me. And what's the operative different feeling in my justification? He could see me as joy and see you with joy in His heart. Now you spend some time thinking about that and it'll change you. And you'll see that whatever it is that He calls you as a disciple to be or to do or to give up or to surrender is really just a drop in Niagara Falls compared to the love that He exhibited on that cross and the glorious thing is that, you know, you look at somebody that dies on the cross. They died all the time during the Roman Empire. Lots of people died on the cross. But he's the one, as Edward said during that great communion devotional, he is the one that resurrected, though. He didn't just hit death and bounce back, but he squeezed through death to the other side so that when we see Jesus, we see what it is that God really wants for us. Life eternal. Without even a whiff of me first. Without even a cent of cancer or, or torn up relationships or bad colleagues or loss of a job or, or any of the other diseases that we might enter into in this life and experience firsthand or through our loved ones. But to be able to be in His presence without a veil, but to be able to see Him as He truly is 
and to know that that is what life is going to be forever and ever and ever and ever. Now, how does that happen? Do you believe that Jesus of Nazareth died on the cross to pay for your sins? And if you do believe that, are you ready to do something about it? I'm asking you. Are you ready to do something about it? Are you ready to confess that He's Lord and not you? He's first, not me first. Are you ready to repent, which is just a biblical $1,000 theological word that just means, are you willing to accept His way? Are you willing to stop saying me first and going in your direction in order to go in His direction and to live in His kingdom rather than your own? I'm asking you, are you ready to do that? And I'm also asking you, do you want to have your sins washed away? You know, some of you haven't been able to sleep very well at night because of your conscience, because of the guilt of knowing, of knowing even what it is that you perceive and see, knowing what it is that you do that's me first, that has affected all of, the, all of creation in terrible ways. The way that you've, you've treated somebody, the way that you've talked about somebody, the, what you did to somebody at work, or what you did to a spouse or to a child, or where you cheated someplace. You can't sleep very well at night. What Christ is offering, what God is offering through Christ, the special servant, the Messiah, is for all of that to be paid for in Him. And He wants to give you a gift. And that gift is He's going to give you life. Not life that you can earn, not life that you can manipulate. It's a life, though, that has been, that has been won. It's been created by Christ on the cross who was willing to die for you in love so that you might receive that gift of life and to become that joy that was set before him that he was able to endure all of that, to see you in his heaven and earth come together kingdom at the end of time. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. And I'm asking you, are you ready? God's power has broken into the universe, has broken in onto the earth, has broken into history. And I'm asking you, are you willing to do something about it? The smart thing, the wise thing, the intelligent thing, are you willing to do something about it right now? If so, we'll have shepherds down here at the front. Come to the front and talk to them. Let them know what's happening in your life, what you want to do. But come down to the front this morning. Don't, don't let this, this opportunity pass you by. And for the rest of us, as we think about the cross and its central place in our life and how it's changed us, and we understand that joy and that blessed assurance and how God has loved us in Christ, let's sing. Let's, let's sing, church. Let's sing with all that we've got and let's raise this roof in the praise of the God who spent that, se- that special servant to die on the cross in such an appalling way that we might find life. You with me? Let's stand and sing together. Would you be free from...